We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 3. Um, you can look at it on your phone or in your Bible or up on the screen in just a minute. In Nehemiah chapter 3, and we're preaching through Nehemiah um, between now and pretty much the middle of September. Nehemiah chapter 3 is set up by the last three verses in chapter 2 that we looked at last week. And so I'm going to read those three verses and then just the first five verses of chapter 3 as representative of the entire chapter, because I don't think you would really truly want me to read the entire chapter, um, which is about the division of labor and rebuilding repairing the walls. It's a detailed list of all of the individuals, which I'm so thankful for that God included all these names in chapter 3, but it gets a little bit tedious. And I've got to admit to you, at first, when I realized, okay, I did assign myself Nehemiah chapter 3. I should have given it to Will, but I gave it to me. Um, And you, You read it and you say, what do I do with this? It's just a long list of names of people and places around the wall that they built. But the more you study it and the more you think about it, the more you realize there's a lot, actually a lot here that's applicable to our lives. And so let's stand for the reading of God's word and then we'll break into it. First of all, from the end of chapter 2, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. And then chapter 3 begins. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachor, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassaneah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakos, repaired. Next to them, Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Please be seated. I would imagine most, if not all of you, at some time or other, maybe even right now, probably right now, have served on some kind of a team effort. Uh, Team sports, where you're all trying to work together to to win the game, win a trophy. Um, In the military, you're a part of a team. You think a band of brothers, you become a band of men, Men and women, in some cases, where you essentially have a, a common enemy, a common opponent, and you have to stick together. You defend each other. You fight for each other. You fight with each other. In the work environment, 
very different than military, different than sports. Nevertheless, you can be a part of a work team where you have common goals that you have to meet in your particular field or department. Our missions teams that went to Chicago and Puerto Rico, they were teams of individuals who banded together to accomplish something. And as you know, there are lots of dynamics at work when you are not doing something all by yourself, but you're doing it with others. You've got different personalities. In some cases, you've got different ages, different genders. Uh, Different people have their ideas as to how best to do the job, and you might agree with what they think, and you might disagree. Different levels of experience. Some people are coming into this project and they've got a lot of experience and others are novices. They don't know what they're doing. Different energy levels. Some people have high energy levels and they could work 23 hours out of 24, it seems like, and others are kind of exhausted after just maybe a half day of labor. And you mix all that together and there can be lots of questions. Are we going to get along on this team? Will we actually achieve our mission? Will we be friends when it's all over? Is there going to be unity or is there going to be division? And at the end, will there be success or will there be failure? Well, the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament is God's people being confronted with the challenge of rebuilding, restoring the city that they loved, which had been destroyed by its enemies and left in ruins, and it had been in ruins for many, many years. Um, It had been 90 years since Ezra began reconstruction of the temple, 70 years since Ezra finished the building of the temple. It all started in 536 B.C. with Ezra, and now it's 445 B.C. It's been a long time. And Nehemiah has felt the call of God upon his life to return and give leadership to bringing Jerusalem back. This seemingly overwhelming task. Now, from a divine standpoint, success would depend on God. We all know that. But from a human standpoint, success would depend on, first of all, whether or not he could get the people on board with his vision. And then secondly, whether or not they would continue to work together until the mission was accomplished. Now, from all of this, I want for us to glean some applicable principles to apply to our lives and to the church and to your marriages, those of you who are married, to whatever building of the wall project that God puts before you that involves working with others for the glory of God. We're going to look at six essentials for building a wall. And i got to be honest with you, as I was thinking through this, Hearing Nehemiah give the rousing motivational charge, let us rise up and build. I can hear the people chanting, build that wall, build that wall. And of course, Nehemiah reassuring the people that he would get Persia to pay for it. Let me give you six essentials for building a wall. Whatever the wall happens to be in your life, and I want you to think Think about those projects that God puts before you. Think about those areas of your life that are in disrepair, that need attention. What are those essentials for building a wall, especially when you're working with other people? And first of all, it begins with vision. It starts out with a vision, a compelling vision of what could be versus what currently is. 
Now, I think in his mind, Nehemiah could already see what Jerusalem would look like once the city was rebuilt. Last week, I showed you some pictures of Aleppo um, before and afters. I think for Nehemiah, he starts with the after, and then he's picturing what it would look like after it was repaired. Lots of destruction, lots of debris as he walks through the city and does his assessment, but he's envisioning what it could look like and what it will look like when it's all repaired. But now the challenge for Nehemiah would be to take his vision and pass it on to the people who had been living there for a number of years. You see, for a long time, God's glory had been held in contempt by the surrounding nations. I think for Nehemiah, the compelling vision was for the glory of God to return to his people and to the place of God's choosing Repairing and rebuilding the wall and its gates really was secondary in Nehemiah's mind to a greater vision for God to once again be honored and glorified. Remember, he said to the people, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. And then he says, that we may no longer suffer derision. See, that's the answer to the question, why build the wall of Jerusalem? There are practical reasons, of course. Protection, defense, security, safety, the stability of the city, the well-being of the people. But for Nehemiah, I think that was it right there, that we may no longer, we God's people may no longer suffer derision. I think that's what really bothered him. That's what stirred him, that God's people and God's chosen place, Jerusalem, and thereby God's name and God's glory had suffered mocking and ridicule by the surrounding nations. You see, friends, Nehemiah's driving passion wasn't the glory of Jerusalem's walls and gates, but the glory of Jerusalem's God. For him, it wasn't fundamentally about bricks and mortar and cedar timbers. It was about God. It was about God's name and God's fame. That's what stirred inside Nehemiah. And I would suggest to you that as the people of God, the same needs to be true for us in any building project that you happen to be a part of. A desire for God to be glorified. Will you benefit from a building project? Most definitely. You will be in a better place at the end of it all. But may the motivator behind it all be a vision for the glory of God being restored. So, for example, how would it be different if you had a vision for different parts of your life? How would it be different if those of you who are married had a mental picture, maybe even a stated description of what you would like for your marriage to become in order for it to glorify God more a year from now than it is today? Or a vision for parents to have for their children that directs them how to pray for your children as they grow up. What do you envision your daughter becoming or your son becoming? Does that drive your prayers? My wife had a pretty specific one-page vision for each of our children as to who they should marry. She wasn't in the matchmaking business. She was in the envisioning and praying business for many years. As, as Josh grew and Judd and Aaron grew up, 
She observed them over the course of their growing up years and on into college. And over time, she was actually writing out, I didn't even realize at the time, she was writing out in her journaling a description of the person that she believed God needed to provide for each of them to marry based upon their strengths and their weaknesses, their passions, their loves. And friends, it is uncanny how close Joanna and Sarah and Reed come to the description that Jenny wrote out. A vision for those whom your children will marry. To those of you who are in your 20s and 30s, I would encourage you to develop a ministry vision. You say, well, Pastor Gary, I'm not in ministry. You know you are in ministry. Whatever your vocation is, you're in ministry, and so you need to have a ministry vision based upon who God has made you and your gifts and your passions. Or what about a financial vision so that your finances glorify God? Did you know that if you make $50,000 a year and in today's economy and where we happen to live, that's probably modest for 40 years, you will be responsible for $2 million that passes through your hands. $75,000 a year, $3 million. $100,000 a year, $4 million. $200,000 a year, $8 million that you're responsible to pass through your hands. What is your vision for glorifying God with what God entrusts into your hands? And so the first key element to a building project is to have a vision. And secondly, organization. You learn from Nehemiah. I want to put a map, of, map up on the screen of the wall. It's probably going to be hard for you to see that. Yeah, it is. Um, but what's interesting, when you study Nehemiah chapter 3, and then you look at a, a graphic such as this, Nehemiah 3 verse 1 begins over here on the right-hand side where it says sheep gate, and then it goes around counterclockwise all around the wall as the description of Nehemiah chapter 3, as to who built at which section of the wall, which section of the wall, which gate they were responsible for. Friends, this wasn't thrown together overnight. This was organized. A lot of thought had gone into this as to who should work where, who should work next to whom. Extremely well organized. And that's an essential ingredient, especially when you have a large scale. You can have a vision. You can have a mental idea of what you hope would happen in your life or with your finances or in your marriage or whatever, but then you've got you to organize a plan. You've got to develop a plan as to how that's going to come about. A good number of you have become familiar and some of you have become involved with Best Buddies over the last few years, which my wonderful wife got started here in St. Louis several years ago. And a couple months ago, we had our annual Best Buddies walk out at Creevecourt Park and our own Matt and Lauren Brickler organized the entire event with 600-plus people participating. It was extremely well-organized from start to finish. A lot of thought went into it in order to make it successful. And had it not been, it would have been chaos. 600 people showing up and nobody knowing what to do or where to go. The participants would have been frustrated. Some of them probably would have left early, and it wouldn't have achieved the success that it did. I don't, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Organization is critical in order to accomplish a mission. And if, you're to, if you're to accomplish a God-given mission, then you need to know that the Holy Spirit has organized the church 
in order to get things done. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for the building of the wall. Everybody's going to benefit from this wall being rebuilt. Everybody benefits from the manifestations of the Spirit. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. See, it's God's design, God's organization for the accomplishment of his mission that he has given to the church. The third principle I see coming out of Nehemiah 3 is delegation. As gifted as Nehemiah was, Nehemiah didn't tackle this project by himself. He was too smart for that, too wise for that. Instead, he gathered around himself trusted individuals that he would put in charge of manageable pieces all around the wall. He could not have pulled off an endeavor of this magnitude alone, nor would have he wanted it. He wanted a team effort. He wanted broad ownership of the people who lived inside the city structure. And so what did he do? He delegated. He gave authority to trusted individuals. You find Moses doing the exact same thing back in Exodus 18. I want to read a few verses from Exodus 18 just to give you a little flavor for a similar situation. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, comes to visit. Moses tells him all the great things that God's doing. Jethro rejoices for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. And then Jethro blessed the Lord. And then the next day, Moses sat down to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till night. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. And Jethro said to him, you're a stupid guy. What you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. And then Jethro gives him advice as to what to do. And Moses broke it down into sizable numbers, thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. Delegation. Delegation. In a local church, if a local church is to carry on effective ministry, there has to be delegation of responsibility and empowerment given to individuals and their teams to get ministry done. You see the exact same thing in Acts chapter 6, where the apostles realize that there is a dispute that has arisen with the Hellenist women who were not being treated fairly in the church. And people come to the apostles and say, can you fix this? And the apostles say, if we fix this, we will not be doing what we've been called to do, the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer. 
but we want to make sure it gets taken care of. And so they appointed the first deacons, and the deacons took charge. That's the first case where the early church needed to work on both organization and structure and delegation, because that's the way things work most effectively. And then as I read through Nehemiah 3, and you get into 4 and 5 and 6, you realize that one of the essential elements in a building project of any size is motivation. What's going to keep you going? What will keep you going in whatever project that you're thinking about right now that needs attention a year from now? What will cause you to have a long-haul mentality when you step into this particular ministry? You see, it's one thing to have initial energy and enthusiasm at the front end of a project. Just like it's easy to have enthusiasm and energy at the front end of a a brand new job. You're just gung-ho. You're ready to tackle the world. And then a year in, two years, three years in, you're starting to get kind of weary, kind of exhausted. And you're realizing there's some aspects to this job that you didn't know were there. Motivation. Nehemiah says, come, let us rebuild. And the people say, let's do this thing. But then you just have to believe. Fatigue may have set in, some bickering with others on the team, with the people next to you on the wall, maybe some resentment over who got the best assignments. How come they got the sheep gate? We wanted the sheep gate. You see, the challenge in motivating a large group of people is that what motivates some won't motivate others. And that's definitely true in the church. Some people are energized by fresh ideas and are ready to change things up tomorrow. Whereas for others, the thoughts of making major changes makes them feel nauseous. Some get supercharged with Hillsong music. Right, Scott? Others wish we would just sing the old hymns. What motivates some doesn't motivate others. Some are motivated to give to foreign missions. Others are more impassioned about doing stuff locally, right here. You see, different motivations for different people. And so you've got a lot of personal taste and preference that enters into the discussion concerning how to motivate the people of God. But friends, tastes and preferences change. And so what is the common motivating factor that's going to keep God's people going? And I would suggest to you, it is a passion for showing and spreading God's glory. Whatever you're doing, a passion for showing and spreading the glory of God in whatever it is that you pursue. That whatever we do, in word or deed, we do it all for the glory of God. Motivation. I will make one observation here, though, about Nehemiah's plan for who worked where on the wall. Is that when he could, it looks as if he apparently tried to put groups of people on a section of the wall that would especially be of interest and motivation to them. For example, the priests, he put them in charge of the sheep gate. Makes total sense. That's where the people brought their sheep to sacrifice. The priests were responsible for that ministry. 
So they would want to work on that part of the wall where they were engaged. Some people worked on the wall right in front of or next to where they lived. It says in verse 10, Jediah repaired opposite his house. Verse 23, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. I think you'd be, you tend to be motivated to do a really good job on that part of the wall that you'll be staring at out your living room window for years. And the same is true when you are working with the church, trying to figure out what is it that motivates him but not him. Where in ministry would she serve the best based upon her passions? For those of you who are parents, how do you motivate your kids? Bribery. What's that? Bribery. Bribery. It works. Threats, maybe. Different kids have different personalities. How do you motivate yourself in a building the wall project in your personal life? What motivates you? The fifth element that I see here that's essential is just flat-out participation. How do you achieve broad participation by the majority of the people? Now, if you read the entire chapter, you notice that there are various vocations mentioned. you got priests, including the high priest, verses 1, 2, 28, you got Levites in verse 17. You got goldsmiths in verses 8, 31, and 32. You got perfumers. Rulers are scattered throughout the entire rulers of half districts and districts of Jerusalem and the surrounding region. A number of merchants. And then you've also just got family units, family members involved. Now, as you look at that list, can't you envision how easy it would have been for virtually all of those people, based upon vocations, to have expressed to Nehemiah their reluctance or even their unwillingness to participate. I mean, the priests and the Levites could have said, we don't do that kind of work. We deal with spiritual things. We plan worship services. We plan sacrifices. We, we work on music and Torah studies. The goldsmiths and perfumers could have said, we aren't construction workers. Look at our hands. We deal with the finer things of life. Gold jewelry, perfumes for the ladies. We don't know a thing about building walls. We hire that out. The rulers could have refused because of their position in society. We're too important for that. The merchants could have refused because they had more important things to do. Got to keep your business running. You can't shut down your shop for 52 days. And they didn't know it was going to be 52 days. It could have been much longer. And so you've got priests and Levites who could have said, we're too spiritual. You've got goldsmiths and perfumers who could have said, we're too refined. Rulers who could have said, we're too important. And merchants who could have said, we're too busy. But that's not what you find. The priests took charge of rebuilding the sheep gates, even though they had never built anything in their entire lives. One commentator mentioned they didn't learn how to do that in seminary. So true. Goldsmiths and perfume makers weren't used to hard labor. 
they would have had sore muscles that they didn't even know existed at the end of their days of labor. City officials didn't stay on the sidelines observing. They rolled up their sleeves and worked side by side with the people whom they governed. And I dare say that most of these people were doing things that they didn't feel skilled at doing, or to use New Testament language, they didn't feel that they were gifted in doing these things. And friends, I would just simply say, you don't ever want to say, I'm not going to do that because it's not my spiritual gift. You see, discovering what your spiritual gift or gifts happen to be over time will help you know where to concentrate your efforts. But there are lots of areas to serve in the life of the church and in kingdom work where we're all just simply called to pitch in, whether it's your gift or not. See, what this chapter is telling us is that everybody participated. Don't sit on the sidelines. Don't sit on the sidelines of God's church. You notice also there were, there were entire families that got involved. There were the sons of one man, and so all that, that man and all of, his, all of his boys worked on a portion of the wall. In verse 12, it says, Shalom repaired he and his daughters. And so the daughters were involved in whatever needed to be done. Plus, there were folks who didn't even live in Jerusalem. I want to put another map up on the screen of the surrounding region. You had people coming from Jericho, which is northeast of Jerusalem, Gibeon, which is northwest of Jerusalem, Tekoa, which is due south, Mizpah, which is also northwest up by Gibeon. And you have the inhabitants of Zenoa. Zenoa is all the way out on the coast. who came in and repaired a portion of the wall. And so, friends, as you can see, there was broad participation across the board. Well, almost. It says in verse 5, Next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. My goodness. And so the people from the town of Tekoa got mentioned there. They actually got mentioned twice, again in verse 27. They repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower. And so the people of Tekoa themselves went above and beyond and said, we can work here, we can also work over there, we can work down there. The people of Tekoa were all in, but the nobles, the city officials, the mayor and the city council, it says of them, they would not stoop to serve their Lord. In other words, We're too important. We don't do such lowly work as this. Not very noble of the nobles. Now, I see a striking contrast with the nobles of Tekoa. His name is Melchijah. It says in verse 14... Melchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district, he's a ruler of the district of Beth Hacharem, repaired the dung gate. And the dung gate is exactly what the name implies. If you can go back and show the map again, 
of the city, you know, the other map, the map of the city, it is at the far, so the sheep gate is over on this side of your screen. The dung gate is all the way out at the far eastern edge of the city. And there was a valley that dropped down behind the dung gate. And that is where the refuse of the city and human excrement was taken to get it outside of the city walls. City dump, city sewer combined into one. Now I can imagine Nehemiah asking for volunteers who's willing to work on the dung gate. And people are kind of shuffling around and not wanting to make eye contact. The dung gate would have probably been the least desirable of all the gates around the entire city. But Melchijah, ruler of a district, raises his hand and says, Nehemiah, I'll take that one. Sign me up. There's a lesson there for me. There's a lesson there for us. Now back to the nobles. I think it's really striking that Nehemiah worded it the way he did. He didn't just say the nobles weren't willing to work or the nobles refused to participate. No, he says the nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. And that is how they will be remembered for posterity, for all future generations to read about. And I would just simply say to you and to myself, Friends, we don't want to be remembered that way. You don't want to be remembered that way. They refused to stoop to serve their Lord. Especially when you think about it, our Lord stooped to serve us. I mean, we needed a Savior, and God's vision was to take what was destroyed by the fall. I mean, the, the walls were torn down, and there were foxes in the vineyard, and, and there was destruction in people's lives. And God the Father had this great and glorious vision to rebuild and restore, and he delegated it to his son, and his son was motivated to do it, to please the Father. And because he could envision, he could envision the day when there would be people from every tribe and nation and tongue and dialect, all in the city of heaven, worshiping the Father. And Jesus said of himself, the Son of Man came not to be served. The Son of Man came to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to lay down his life so that the, so that the walls might be built Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. See, that's what, that's what, the, that's what the, the rulers who refused, they were grasping their power and their position. We don't stoop to do that kind of labor. And yet the king of kings and the Lord of lords would stoop to serve you and me. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. See, that's at the very heart of the gospel. That is at the very heart of the gospel, and as a result, is at the very heart of what it means for you and me to follow Christ. 
It's all about stooping down to serve our Lord and stooping down to do whatever God calls us to do. The last element that I see here in this passage is recognition and appreciation. See, one of the things you just have to conclude when you read a chapter like this is that Nehemiah made a point. He apparently had been keeping a journal. You know, he, was, he was good at all this. He was very organized and very meticulous, and so he, he kept a record for himself. He kept a record probably for others to know, a detailed list of every single person, a man's daughter's. Someone who lived far away coming into the city, who didn't even live in the city, willing to build the dung gate so that he could show appreciation and recognition for all these folks. You read through the list of Nehemiah 3 and you can find yourself, once you understand what's going on here, you can find yourself saying, Lord, thank you for Eliashib, the high priest. Thank you for the other priests who worked on the sheep gate. Lord, thank you for Melatiah, the Gibeonite. He didn't even live in town. The sacrifice he made each day, traveling in from Gibeon to work on the wall. Thank you for the daughters of Shalom. Lord, thank you for Melchijah, who labored for seven and a half weeks next to the city sewer. And Lord, thank you for, and you start to fill in names of people at West Hills who labor on the wall. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for him. Thank you for her. Thank you for that family. Because the wall of West Hills would not be built without these good people. Nehemiah was so good at recognition and showing appreciation. And I think God would call us to be the same to recognize and appreciate and not be afraid to receive recognition and appreciation when it, is, when it comes our way. When someone just simply says, thank you so much for what you do with our kids every week. Thank you for taking care of my baby every Sunday. Thank you for doing behind-the-scenes stuff that nobody notices around here. You see, the great thing here for me isn't just that Nehemiah recognized people. You know what's bigger than that, friends? that God recognized these people and included their names in his book. God is that personal. I am so, so glad that the Lord recognizes individual people that the world will never see or recognize for what they do. Jesus says, I know my own. I know my own. And my own know me. Let me conclude with a story that I read this past week. It's about some missionaries from the States who went to the Philippines to serve. And one day they were out in their yard, and they set up a croquet game, and some of the villagers were watching them play croquet, Didn't, weren't familiar with the game, and they showed interest, and they came over and watched, and so the missionaries explained how the game is played, and then they gave each of them a mallet and a ball, 
and they started to play the game of croquet. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the game, you know that if your ball hits somebody else's ball, you can then put your ball next to their ball and put your foot on your ball and whack it and knock it away from, knock it out of the court. Well, that opportunity came along at one point, and the missionary explained the procedure as to how to do it. But the Filipino looked very puzzled and said, why would I want to knock his ball out of the court? The missionary said, so you can win. The neighbor shook his head in bewilderment because in that hunting and gathering society, people survive not by competing, but by sharing equally in every activity. Why would I do him harm when I work with him every day? Well, the game continued. None of the neighbors followed the missionary's advice on how to win. And when the first player got through all the wickets, the game wasn't over. He went back and encouraged and gave advice to the guy who was way back in the third wicket and having trouble. And finally, when the last player hit his ball through the last wicket, the whole group shouted together, We won! We won! Now, maybe that kind of approach to sports wouldn't make it on ESPN. Probably wouldn't. But it sure does work well in the church. It sure does work well in the church. Shoulder to shoulder, everyone rolling up their sleeves, serving in some capacity, willing to do whatever's needed, always with a vision and a passion for God's glory being shown and being spread. And when one member scores a point, it's a win for the whole team. And when the wall is built, when all the work is done, and when the Lord himself returns, he will say to every single worker who labored on his wall, good job. Good job. Thank you. Well done. Well done. Let's pray. Friends, we have a great, great God who is taking all the damage that was done in the garden, all the damage that has been done ever since that fateful day in the lives of people like you and me because of sin, and he is bringing renewal and restoration to the lives of those who trust him. God is into building and repairing walls and gates, bringing life where there was death, beauty where there was despair, I would invite you right where you are this morning, if you've never trusted in Christ, the one who builds lives, the one who saves people from their sins, give your life to Jesus today. Decide this day to follow him, to trust him. The father loved you so much that he delegated his son. He sent his son on a great mission to come and give his life for you, to give his life for you. Receive him. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. I mark this day as the day when I choose to make you my Savior and my Lord.
come and build something beautiful out of my messed up life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are the church. We are the church. God calls us to build for his glory. Not with brick and mortar and timbers, but with lives, with lives. May we each take our place around the wall, using the gifts and the passions and the abilities and the skills that God has entrusted to us projects that would bring him glory. Lives and homes that are in disrepair being restored and renewed. Have a vision for what God would want to do in you and through you and with others for his glory. Thank you, Lord. We worship you today. You are a great and amazing God. When we read your word and we see the things that you've done, the great, great things that you've done all throughout history, and now we're a part of that, we get to be a part of that by your grace. Thank you. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for the laborers, the workers on the wall here at West Hills. Bless them, Lord. Bless each one for whatever he or she does. We give you thanks. You are the great God and you deserve all the glory. We pray in the matchless name of Christ our Savior.